Welcome to the Way Life Should Be podcast. Inspiring stories of people who are making the world a better place, the qualities that guide them, and lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Lauren Lombard. I am joined today by my good friend, Adrian Tritonati. He is the executive director for Open Door Legal in San Francisco. And actually one of the original inspirations for starting this podcast. You know, over time and in the various um, travels that I've done and through different people, I've some really amazing people and um, people who are impacting the world in different ways. And I just have felt like those stories needed to be shared. So that's kind of how this podcast started. And I am excited that you are taking time out of your busy life running this organization and managing so many different things to have this conversation with us. Um, so thank you for being here. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I'm honored. And uh, I'm especially honored that uh, you called me your friend, Lauren. You know, I've been trying so hard over the last few years uh, for you to finally recognize me as a friend. Uh, and it sounds like I finally got there. You know, I always thought you were too cool for me, but, um, you know, I just kept trying. Oh, so, okay. so, <laughs> this is great. So I kind of wanted to start back at the beginning, like um, before you went to law school, before you went to college, kind of get into a little bit of um, where what your childhood was like and what were some of the inspiration for um, and your concern with impoverished communities and um, different needs of the world even originated. Um, so I don't think you're originally from California. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I'm originally from the DC area. I grew up in Montgomery County. I went to school at College Park. Uh, University of Maryland, and then worked in Prince George's County. Um, and, um, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I've really um, been very curious about poverty. And I would say, um, you know, it was put on my heart um, from an early age, this idea that that sort of poverty and is is kind of wrong, right? And and I wanted to figure out how to solve it. And I remember thinking that in like eighth grade, like how can we solve poverty? Um, and uh, it, it made it for interesting table discussions, you know, over dinner and then in my home with like little eighth grade Adrian, ninth grade Adrian being like the world is unjust and we need to do more. We need to give more to charity. You know, I would sort of save up my allowance throughout the year and, and give it all away um, 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 during Christmas. And um, and I would, like, refuse to make Christmas lists, right? Because it was like, like my little, like, fight against consumerism was to say, I have everything I need. I don't need anything. Um, let's do more for people that don't have anything, right? And, again, it's create an interesting dynamic. But, um, you know, I went to college and I, and I really decided I was going to study this um, in depth. 
and I sort of studied political economy. I studied uh, sort of poverty research and sociology, um, and um, you know, just trying to figure out why does the American economy produce so much poverty relative to other developed countries, despite the spending uh, on anti-poverty work and the progressive income tax we have, like just on a sort of strict model basis, we should have a lot less poverty, right? So something is kind of wrong mm -hmm. at the system level and nobody quite knows what it was. That was kind of my conclusion from college. And, um, you know, eventually I um, decided I was gonna get started in local economic development. And I, I went um, to work at the small nonprofit and I tried a whole lot of different strategies from mural creation to running community events to local business finance to uh, sort of legislation and, and advocacy and um, I thought I made sort of good project outcomes but after a couple of years of doing this I realized you know I'm not really sort of moving the needle on poverty mm. you know I, I couldn't think of any one person I had gotten out of poverty and and I would have expected to be more effective and so um, I, I started sort of theorizing about what was the most effective way to address poverty in America, right? What is the thing that is sort of missing that in the system? Um, and eventually I theorized that thing was legal aid. Mm -hmm. And um, and that led me to write up a business plan uh, about, um, you know, how I would sort of create a system of universal access for legal assistance. Um, and uh, and then apply to law school. And you 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 ended up using that business plan as your application to law school. What kind of a summary of it? Three pages. So, but I did, I sort of condensed it into an executive summary, and I used that as my application essay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So, um, you had this plan uh, from before you even attended law school. Did you? You know, did you go into law because you were drawn to law or because you were seeing that this was an opportunity to solve a bigger problem? Yeah, I wouldn't say I was drawn to law specifically. Um, it was more like I the, this thesis, this idea I had about legal services being the, the sort of most effective way to address poverty, the missing part of the system. Um, you know, I felt like I felt like I, I had to show that. And in order to do that, I felt like I had to go to law school, get a get a license to practice so I could start the nonprofit so that I could produce the data that would show that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's why I went to law school. And one of the crazy things I did was I refused to do any internships in law school because basically I thought if I do an internship, that'll build sort of, a resume and professional connections, which could then get me a job. And I didn't want to be tempted by the possibility of employment, right? Yeah. So I was like, I'm going to make myself totally unemployable. <laughs> so even though I sort of graduated in the top 5%, um, I knew nobody would hire me. Nobody would hire me. I had never interned anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't have any experience. <laughs> So um, I didn't have, I didn't know anyone, right? And actually, that might have been not the smartest plan, Lauren. Um, 
but you know, um, that's what I did, right? And uh, and so I so I graduated with no skills, not knowing anything. <laughs> I wouldn't say no um, skills, but um, no money, right? Um, yeah. And um, but you know, I kind of went full steam ahead into into launching the nonprofit. That's really amazing. I mean, that you had that vision so clear that you didn't want anything to stand in the way of actually making it happen. Well, I wouldn't say that. I I would say like uh, I was worried I would get tempted. You know, mm-hmm. like you know, starting a nonprofit is very risky, um, especially with no committed funding. Um, and I was like, you know, what if I went to an internship and they offered me a job? I mean, that would be awful, right? Yeah. Um, that could that well, could derail everything. It would derail what you had <laughs> intended, I suppose. <laughs> so I was like, rather than rather than make that sort of like like possible, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna sort of not do that, right? <laughs> yeah. So you started your nonprofit in San Francisco. Um, yeah. Why San Francisco? Did you have um, that plan in mind ahead of time, or is that kind of where you ended up? Yeah, yeah, I had always wanted to move to San Francisco. I was sort of obsessed with San Francisco as a little kid. You know, I like, I would go to like Barnes and Noble and buy like five guidebooks about the city and I would sort of memorize them. And uh, and I would, I made like a mixtape about San Francisco. And um, I told everyone in high school that I was moving to San Francisco. And, and, um, and it really bothered me that my grandfather didn't believe me. He thought I was a psychic. So I was like, I'm going to prove him wrong, right? Um, um, yeah, I've always loved the city, um, even though it's it's uh, it's broken in a lot of ways. Um, there's just something about it that that uh, really uh, really really inspires and attracts me. That's amazing that you had also that idea of moving there for such a long time and now you're making such a tremendous impact on the city. Um, so tell me about Open Door Legal and you started right out of law school right after you graduated. So we opened for operations two weeks after I got my law license. I was really fortunate um, to um, meet a friend and colleague at law school named Virginia and she agreed to sort of join the team sort of as we started. Um, so we sort of paid ourselves a little bit less than minimum wage, actually, for the first year and had to work very hard to not only build the infrastructure and funding base, but to learn the law and how to practice law in like 35 different areas of law. Like just talking about it sounds it sounds crazy, right? It's insane. Um, but fortunately, we built this sort of track record of success, and there was so much need. I mean, I can't. It's, it's hard to describe how many people need legal help that aren't getting it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when when I opened, essentially all I did was put a sign in the window, and with just the sign, we were immediately overwhelmed with requests for help from people with good legal cases that had been turned away from multiple places, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, um, since you, you kind of don't really know what demand is until you get started, right? It's right. quite a confirmation for me that like, oh yeah, this is actually, the reality on the ground matches what I've been theorizing for, for like, you know, three or four years. 
but on the other hand, it's just very disheartening. You know, you get so many people who have these huge problems that there's no way they could solve them on their own, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember feeling like, you know, how is it that sort of like, like a kid with no law school, no legal experience and no money is their only hope for resolving this major life problem. You know, that is really messed up. Yeah. The fact that it's like America, right? It's like, how did it, I end up being like the only way this is going to get solved? And that's actually, um, that's kind of a crappy place to be in to feel like and and to be overwhelmed with demand and and sort of know there is no one else, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, That is going to to do this um, because there's not enough providers, right? Um, Or people willing to do the work. Um, And it was like that again and again, week after week, you know, but but because, you know, I I had been thinking about scaling from the beginning you know i was i'd spent every week i would spend time building infrastructure cultivating donors finding partnerships and so by our second year right we were able to triple our our budget and the third year we were able to triple again and the fourth year we were able to triple again Uh, and and so you know start filling that sort of that need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even in a small way, right? And but you know, I was, you know, people would I get a lot of criticism. People are like, you don't know what you're doing, you know, why are you starting another nonprofit? And I was like, you know, like I don't understand why I'm getting criticism. These people are getting no help, right? Right. So, you know, maybe I don't have experience, but I'm I'm smart. I have so many years of education, you know, I speak English, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like surely I can be of some assistance, you know? Um, and like I said, we, we developed a really good track record of success in a whole range of cases from family law to housing law to consumer law. Um, and um, yeah, and, and eventually we got to a sort of a point of, institutional credibility, um, sustainable funding. Um, and I was able to transition to sort of more of a management sort of executive role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you in the beginning were having to do everything pretty much. So it's like a huge learning curve. In addition to learning 35 areas of law, you're also fundraising and networking and you know, figuring out all of the different things that you need to establish the nonprofit in the community. And what were the early days like compared to now? What ways do you feel like you have learned and grown in? um, Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, it sounds crazy, but, but really, I, I did not anticipate, I could not have anticipated how hard it would be, Mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I'm sort of an optimist, and um, and uh, I think I'm really smart. And I I had this idea that, you know, I'm smart, I can solve every problem, and it's doable, right? But really, um, the problem is so big, it it was not doable, right? And I had to get lucky, and I had to get um, 
um, and I should say I was very lucky to get so much help mm-hmm. from from so many people, um, and especially from a lot of donors. Uh, and I think a lot of people they just kind of saw how much I was struggling, like, and they, they're like, you know, we better help it because otherwise Adrian's gonna drown, you know, it's kind of the, the thinking. So, so I'm just like. I'm like paddling in an ocean or like I'm paddling in an ocean and finally people would throw like life preservers, right? And be like, here you go. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but I learned very quickly that I couldn't control everything and that, um, and, and then I'm so grateful for everyone who came alongside us to, to support the work, especially early on. Um, and, uh, and, you know, learning how to, that it's, success or failure right in this space isn't really about someone how smart you are or your own productivity it's it's really um sort of about provision and um and sometimes you don't know what and sometimes especially in the early days i really didn't know how we were going to make payroll right Mm -hmm. and you know someone would be generous at the right moment and um and we never miss payroll right um um but that's hard and it's stressful and it took a toll on me um and and i knew and everyone knew that that pace wasn't sustainable right right so the challenge is sort of like how do you exit that as fast as possible because i don't think um i don't i don't think there's any way around that that initial period of extreme difficulty when you're sort of starting something new especially a nonprofit, but you know, by the third and fourth year, I knew we had to get out of it quickly, quickly, otherwise I was going to lose it. And, um, yeah, it took, it took longer than I would have hoped, but, um, but now we've, we've sort of exited that and have sort of entered a phase of very stable finances, consistent growth, strong and diverse team. And, you know, my role, it keeps getting abstracted, right? So, Whereas first I was doing everything from sweeping the floors to doing the bookkeeping mm-hmm. to legal advice. You know, now I'm, I'm more sort of about talent development strategy, you know, sort of major fundraising um, kind of work. Yeah. Now you said that you had no idea how hard it would be. Um, do you think that you would have undertaken this if you had known what it would pan out to be or are you glad that you you know that you didn't know everything or, or that no i'm glad i didn't know you know i think it on some level it takes a certain degree of hubris to start a nonprofit. yeah um but for any entrepreneur right like you're told so many times when you start something new that it's a bad idea that it's never going to work that you don't know what you're doing and so the only way through that is to just have this kind of like unshakable self-confidence and I see that as necessary right so if someone had told me before really how hard it was going to be I I don't think I would have believed them you know mm-hmm. <laughs> or it would have been like well I'm sure I'm sure I could figure it out right mm-hmm. like and and one of the tricks in, in sort of growing a business is like once you've sort of proven success, you have to kind of get rid of that that mentality because it, it'll prevent your sort of future growth, right? Um, you, because eventually you need to actually start listening to other people and, um, and um, you know, building a team and, um, 
and stuff like that, right? And questioning assumptions and um, so that's also like part of the entrepreneur's journey. But knowing what I know now about how hard it actually was, I don't know if I could do it again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting you know, observation of how much you evolve with something that you built. And I think that you, you think that it's going to be one thing or that you are going to approach it a certain way. And, and first of all, the process changes over time, but also you change over time. Um, yeah. having gone through all of that so yeah but yeah you have to start with that grit and self-confidence to even undertake something like that yeah. so how big is your team now so we're at about 15 uh, but we're growing to 31 in the next two months wow so you're double yeah that's crazy so, you know, a lot of a lot of what you had to do initially and what a lot of what you're still doing is building relationships and pursuing funding sources. Um, mm -hmm. And you've had to really take on, a, you know, the, the fundraising role to like really kind of get the nonprofit off the ground. And you have a way of being very persuasive and really... <laughs> really um compelling with the things that you're you're communicating and so many you have just a lot of incredible stories and so many doors have opened as a result of i mean open door legal but um you know just different businesses and different funders have helped in different ways with donating venues and donating you know different things and um you know how has that process been for you like as you have figured out how to communicate what you're doing and how to um, really connect with people who have an ability to help grow yeah. the organization and, and, and get you to where you need to go. Yeah. Well, I really believe that, um, you know, good, um, good fundraising starts with having good impact, right? Mm -hmm. Like actually changing clients lives, right? Yeah, you know, if you're not actually changing the lives of beneficiaries, then no amount of good marketing, I think, is really going to save you, right? Or good, po or like polished presentation, in the long run, right? It might help you for a little bit, but so, so I really focused on that, right, at the beginning. Um, what was smart about uh, what we did is, um, you know, we built this sort of case management system from the ground up, so that we could very sort of finally track our impact. And having that data set uh, and reframing the work we're doing in terms of its effect on poverty reduction um, is uh, what drove a lot of our early success, right? Mm. So what I learned was um, sort of framing legal aid in terms of a, pro a poverty intervention could unlock a lot of funding that hadn't been going towards legal aid um, because legal aid traditionally has framed itself as sort of a justice issue, justice right. solution, which it is, but it's also a poverty solution, a poverty issue. And, and it's because the other groups hadn't really framed their work in that way, hadn't developed metrics around poverty reduction 
or studies around poverty reduction, they, they were not sort of tapping into those funders. Um, and I don't just mean institutional funders, I mean a lot of individual funders who were trying, who wanted to, through their donations, address poverty in San Francisco, um, but were not supporting legal aid. And so um, by having, you know, by actually changing the lives of clients, by collecting data on it, and then framing it in a way for which there was a receptive audience, um, we were able to rapidly grow our funding. That's amazing. Um, so another thing that you have really had to do is develop relationships in the community and, mm -hmm. you know, kind of get to know what are the needs in the community, get to know the clients that you're serving and what has the reception been in the community that you've been working in? So, you know, before we opened, you know, people had told me Bay View is a really hard community to work in. They're very suspicious of outsiders and outside programs. And that's all very true. Um, but it sort of wasn't our experience because, because it was so obvious to community members and social service groups that, that this was an unmet need, um, that they had friends and relatives and clients who had legal problems that were not being helped and could not get help on, that when we opened, um, the support that I got and felt was like overwhelmingly positive. You know, people were like, thank you so much. We've been waiting for this for a long time. Um, we're so glad you're here. And, um, you know, in the program design, it's very, we, we try to design our program to be very responsive to community needs in the sense that it's universal access, right? So whatever legal problems are being, are happening in the community, those are the ones we address. We don't sort of define before a priority what the legal problems are that we want to address and then sort of go out and find the clients for that, right? We let the clients come in, tell us their problems, and then we work to address that. Um, but we also sort of include clients in our governance model. So we make clients voting members of our the nonprofit and we um, include them in the budgeting process and the process electing directors. That's wonderful. Um, so we try to get like, sort of build them up as stakeholders um, and, and then develop relationships with other social service groups, uh, sort of engaging in joint case management um, you know, see how we can, you know, fit the needs of their clients. And what happened over five or six years is every local social service group now um, basically exclusively refers clients to us who have legal issues, right? The local supervisor's office, whenever people call them with legal issues, they exclusively refer to us. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and yeah, we feel like a lot of support from sort of these these other institutions around our work. That's amazing. Do you have any stories from some of your clients that really stand out to you? You could share. Um, yeah, I have so many stories, right? Um, you know, one story uh, was a client, and she sort of was in this abusive relationship for about eight years. Um, she had sort of gotten forced to marry this guy after high school. Um, she was also an immigrant um, and, in, and was assaulted about twice a week 
by her husband. Mm. And she was even hospitalized once because of the injuries, but the police were never called. You know, they had two children um, who had to sort of exist in this environment. And one day, her husband actually called the cops and said that his, that our client, his wife, had hit him. Mm-hmm. So cops come, you know, she protests, she doesn't understand, um, but they arrest her. Um, and despite the sort of overwhelming evidence that she's the true victim, you know, she's in jail for five days and then released and given this restraining order that prevents her from going home. So she's never charged the criminal case, so she doesn't get a public defender because sort of restraining orders are considered civil matters. Right. Um, but because she can't go home, she can't get any money, you know, she only has the clothes on her back, right? She can't see her children. Uh, mm. um, and so she ends up homeless, actually, in San Francisco. Mm. Uh, she doesn't want to leave the area because her kids are here. And so... Um, she has this trial coming up on whether or not she'll be allowed back in her home. And she goes around the city, right, and asks agency after agency after agency if they will help her on her trial. And they all turn her away. They all turn her away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and she was one of those people that walked in the door, saw the sign, you know, walked mm-hmm. in the door and said, I have this massive issue right will you help me right um and we said sure right the trial uh, the first hearing i should say was in three days um we took her case i convinced this family attorney to work on the case with us pro bono we, we brought one of our staff attorneys uh, we ended up doing a three-day trial we got her back in the home we got her husband out of the home mm-hmm. we got her child support we got her sole custody of the children uh and then we got her divorce even though her husband had tried to hide all the community assets Mm. Uh, and all this was done for a fraction of what homeless services costs right yeah this she obviously transitioned out of homelessness she transitioned back into full-time employment um and um she finished her citizenship and you know her life is completely different um, because of this, right? Mm. Um, and it's crazy to me that sort of as a society, right, we could and would spend money on things like shelter, emergency food, um, CPS services, um, psychological services, medical services, batterers programs. You know, but the thing she needed, the thing we don't provide, um, the most cost-effective solution, um, um, legal services, um, you know, that that's what wasn't provided, right? And so that kind of, that what goes back to the thesis I had, like, you know, 10 years ago, um, um, and how I got into this work, right? Because I really believe it's the least funded, most cost-effective way to address poverty in San Francisco or in the country. That's amazing. So you are pioneering new ways of approaching poverty and the situations, different things that exist in your community. You're also finding new ways to help businesses in the community by helping them raise equity. Um, can you tell me more about that? So, so you know, we had tried a couple different income strategies, and um, 
you know, as we sort of figured out how we were going to sort of scale. And one of the strategies was to work with local businesses um, and, and help them raise funding. And, and we transitioned into doing some, some sort of general legal ops, but we actually discontinued that um, because sort of as a revenue strategy, it wasn't really taking off. And we sort of focus on our sort of core mission of helping low-income people. So it's kind of putting uh, a drain on your time yeah. if it's not helping. Yeah, and, and then we ended up focusing more on sort of public affairs as a way to sort of really grow the, our revenue. Um, so, you know, we put time and attention into really showing the city the value of this service as kind of an upstream cost-effective way of addressing poverty and homelessness and domestic violence and property crime in San Francisco. And uh, after about two years, we made a big breakthrough with the city. And um, that's why we're actually going to be doubling soon. That's amazing. So as you've grown, um, and especially now as you are about to double in size, mm -hmm. you're having to hire a lot of people and um, yeah. kind of one of your main focuses now is, is seeking out talent and um, kind of helping develop and train and coach the people that you do hire. Um, yeah. And I know you told me once that you have like a specific method to how you hire people and like what you look for and how you um, yeah. know when you found what you're looking for and i don't know if we can share any of that process i can give away the whole thing but um you know essentially i really look for sort of character and critical thinking skills mm. so i say like the two most important things are in a candidate are perseverance and curiosity mm. so perseverance i look for people who who have wanted something so bad that, you know, any obstacle um, could be overcome, right? You know, um, I just interviewed this woman who like moved to the US um, to attend university um, and um, moved to Tennessee and didn't speak any English and mm -hmm. had no money, right? Mm -hmm. and taught herself English wow. by walking around Nashville and talking to people Wow! Um, so that she could get a degree so that she could pursue her dream of becoming a lawyer right in the US yeah. um, you know and so um, so I mean that's a good story someone who really has perseverance right and, and then for curiosity you know you look for people who um, love learning and are always curious about new things and seem to have like all these weird sort of esoteric knowledge about everything you know because they're just always reading wikipedia or going down a rabbit rabbit hole or tinkering with electronics or you know whatever right people who can really freak out on stuff and the reason why these two are really important is because you know when you're practicing law in the style that we do you need to have really good what's called generalized problem solving skills. And you can have really good generalized problem solving skills if you're able to work through failure 
iterate quickly and 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 sort of combine a diverse set of knowledge, right? And mm -hmm. and if you have these two personality traits, you can do the, you can do those things well. That's really interesting. I I think it's really cool that you've kind of distilled it down to those key things. And I think a lot of people are are looking for you know, specific things in education and um, in experience. And what you're looking for is the ability to grow and adapt in whatever situation they come into, which is essential for the, yeah. the, the needs that you face on a daily basis. Right. So, cool. um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I found that um, your experience just matters a lot less than people think, you know? It's not really a predictor of success having done a job in the past. That's cool. I think, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to give people that chance to, you know, I, I know, I think it takes a, a specific kind of person to see potential beyond what experience might suggest or beyond what, you know, their education is like just seeing who this person is and what they can contribute or what they can learn and develop um, in a short period of time. And yeah. I think that's, that's really cool. You, um, every year you, you hold the, the greatest gala that, uh, in the, in the universe anywhere. In the history of, oh, the, in, of the world, yeah. In the history of the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you have, you know, done some really tremendous work to, to make that happen and to, We've had people you know, donate. I really one hope you can make it one year. I am too. I actually had it on my calendar this year, <laughs> and I was hoping I could make it out there, but it just um, hasn't hasn't worked out yet. So it's a little bit of uh, a lot of country in the middle um, <laughs> between us, and um, my schedule has not allowed. But one of these one of well, these times, worry. they will make you can it. Always move to San Francisco. <laughs> There's always that. <laughs> um, so I want you to tell me a little bit more about the gala and how you um, kind of came up with the idea of doing a, a big fundraiser and um, how you've kind of gotten people on board with that and um, how you run it and, and what, what has worked and what hasn't and yeah. how that's evolved. So... Um... You know, one reason for doing a, a fundraiser, one one good reason is um, is creating a sense of community from your supporters, right? Mm -hmm. And making them know that it's not just them giving to this work, right? It's it's a whole lot of people who are passionate about the work. And another way is um, you can allow your donors to directly experience and interact with our beneficiaries right i mean there's just inherently a lot of social distance between the people who are giving and supporting the work and the people who need the services right, right? and right. there aren't a lot of sort of natural ways for them to intersect because it's not like 
you know, you necessarily want to go to a client and be like, you know, this family is funding your case, right? They want to meet with you, right? Because um, that that doesn't feel uh, very empowering, right? Um, to the clients, right? And it's really important that clients feel empowered, that their identities are protected. Um, and so one way you can allow clients and, and, um, and donors to meet is through an event. Um, and, um, over the years, you know, um, and so what I learned with events is the thing that matters the most is sort of the program, the presentation, um, the ability to see clients and, um, and hear about the work. That's what really drives giving and the things that don't matter or that matter less are things like the decorations, the space, the food, all the things that cost money, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone told me, well, events are, don't do events because they're way too expensive and they, they don't make money. What I learned is the reason why they're not making money is because they're focused, they're focusing on the wrong things. They're focusing on the logistics and the space and the food, and they're not focusing on telling good stories, you know, giving the opportunity to meet with beneficiaries, um, hearing about the work firsthand, right? Right. And um, some events, I mean, they go so far away from beneficiaries. They don't even invite beneficiaries, right? Mm. They don't even talk about the work. They hold like live auctions and, and give away prizes. Right. And you can sort of make money that way, but from a certain crowd, but nobody is getting invested in the work, right? Um, and so, so I don't really see it as an effective way of, of growing your supporter base over time. Um, so over the years, right, we have improved the food, we have improved the catering, we have improved the logistics, the space, the decorations. But we have really, really improved the storytelling mm. um, and the, um, the, the, the way the work is shared. Um, and, it, and, and to be able to hear the stories directly from clients, um, it's just so moving, right? Um, it is, I, I mean, I've, I mean, I've been there every year and I, I like, I'm, I'm just like, just to- so moved and the staff is like bawling and mm. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very special thing. Um, so. It's amazing. I think, um, you know, I haven't had a chance to go yet. I do hope to make it there at some point, but it sounds very inspiring. And I, you know, I think that um, being able to constantly like see what you can improve on and how you can better communicate with people, that's really what's going to reach, reach them and help them to give more. So that's... You know, that... Oh, yeah, another thing I was taught and that I believe is that a nonprofit should change the lives of all of its stakeholders, mm. right? So it should obviously change the lives of your beneficiaries, mm-hmm. but it should also change the lives of your staff and of your donors, right? 
<laughs> donors who contribute and intersect with this work um, should have their lives changed. You know, they, they should have their hearts changed. They should grow in understanding. They should grow in a, like a sense of purpose and meaning, right? Um, and empathy yeah. for for you know what's going on in the world. And and similarly, like staff should get a sense of personal fulfillment, professional development through the work. Um, because if you're not if you're not changing the lives of your donors, then then you're kind of treating them like transactions, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and you're not really gonna grow your donor base, right? right? If you're not changing the lives of your staff, then you're essentially kind of exploiting them to serve your beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not changing the lives of your beneficiaries, then you really shouldn't be in business. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So what advice do you have for someone who has a burden to do something or has a specific vision of um, something that they can contribute or build or do or mm-hmm. learn? Um, what advice might you have for them to, you know, like where to start or, or like how to keep going when um, things get tough? You know, um, I would say don't start something new. <laughs> I would repeat that about a hundred times. And if they totally weren't listening to me, then I'd be like, okay, here's what you need to do. <laughs> so for the podcast, I'm going to say don't start something new. <laughs> it, it is so hard and it will, I had it, yeah. Um, um, but you know, um, but I would um, after that, right? I would say thank you, right, and and uh, and encourage them because there's so many people in this world that just don't seem to care about the sort of suffering of um, of other people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're like numb to it. And, um, and I would say, you know, it's really encouraging that there are people who aren't numb to it. Um, and, and it's all about connecting your passion and what gives you meaning in the world with sort of, um, an org that, that can sort of actualize on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in different ways, you know. Um, you could find that meaning in actualization through giving to an org that is that is doing really powerful work, um, or volunteering or working for an org, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, you know, I believe everybody should be doing something, you know. Like we all have to accept some level of personal responsibility for the suffering, you know, we see, um, we can't just say it's someone else's problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most of the time it's easier to not think too much about it 
And mm -hmm. um, for those who do decide to make a difference, um, it is, you know, it's a challenge. Like you were saying, you felt the weight of the responsibility of building this thing that no one was doing. And um, I think not enough people are in that space, but um, I just think it's really inspiring what you have done and what you've um, continued to strive for. And it's yeah. built this whole um, organization that's serving so many people. Can you tell me a little bit about um, like how many people you've impacted and um, what? Well, we've, um, we've closed about 1,700 cases so far in 35 areas of law. Um, and, you know, we're serving in about 250 families a year right now. Um, but with the ramp up, right, we're hoping to scale up to 400 per year in the next year. Um, and eventually scale up to about 2,000 a year. Wow, that's amazing. So you have people that specialize in specific areas of law that work with yeah. you? Yeah, so, so we do have sort of some practice groups, although we also train our staff to be flexible and um, um, so that they can pick up cases in other areas of law if, if needed. Okay. Have there yeah, been any so. tools that you have really helped you as you're coordinating? I mean, three or 400 cases is, is a lot. Um, and I know that you're also dealing with donors and dealing with... Um, a variety of different things. Have there been tools that have been helpful for you as you've kind of juggled all of that? Yeah. Um, well, we the, the sort of logistical complexity of what we wanted to create was so big that we decided to build our own case management tool. Um, and um, been working on it for like five years. And mm. I, I honestly think it's better than any other case management system on the market. Um, it can track knowledge and intakes and cases and outcomes and um, and grant reporting and time tracking and um, a whole lot of things. And it streamlines the whole work and, and uh, makes it easy to do quality control, monitor client feedback, um, you know, et cetera. Um, and it also manages our donor relations and our volunteer management. Um, so, so basically the program model wouldn't be possible without this sort of technology piece. Wow. And you just built that from scratch without having any knowledge of how to, how to do that. You just kind of figured it out. Um, it is built on Salesforce. Um, so it's like an app that works on top of Salesforce and, you know, there's just a lot of documentation online on how to build apps for Salesforce. So, um, yeah, so we, we essentially taught ourselves and, and just went through a process of rapid iteration and, um, to, to get to the product that we have now. It's amazing. Um, so do you have, uh, you know, kind of what is your, um, your personal ethos or your, like, 
way that you kind of approach approach life. I mean, obviously, this is all um, a re result of kind of the way that you are solution oriented in the way that you kind of um, view your place in the world and your ability to impact um, the lives of others. But do you have anything that you kind of um, look to as far as um, kind of your uh, inspiration or a way that uh, something that, you know, you kind of, a quote that you live by or something that kind of um, has been meaningful to you? Um, well, there's a lot of things that are meaningful, right? I mean, um, you know, um, when we started, um, um, you know, and, and I was sort of pitching this vision for universal access and, and the idea that anybody with a legal issue should, will be able to get legal help. Um, people would tell me, in fact, virtually everyone who was an expert in the field told me that it was not possible. It would never happen. It was not possible. Um, there wasn't enough funding or it was programmatically impossible or right. Um, but I remember this quote from Mandela, right, which said, everything seems impossible until it's done. And I had mm -hmm. that like in my email signature and I just remember that and I'll be like, well, after it's done, um, it'll, it'll look obvious in retrospect yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, pe and people will write, oh, these were the signs that said this was going to happen. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, we're on track now to, um, in within two years, expand citywide, make San Francisco the first city in the country with universal access to legal help. And at that point, we're going to create a replication program and and begin sort of bringing this to other cities. That's absolutely amazing. I just can't even wrap my mind around that. Um, but it's just incredibly inspiring what you're doing. Um, you're, you're brilliant, you're driven, and um, you have an innovative approach to addressing poverty. But I think the thing that has really stood out the most is how much you care for people. I know I've seen you on the streets with clients and, um, you know, with uh, just meeting with people in the community. And um, I think a real reason why the organization has survived and has grown and has become what it is now is because of, you know, your dedication to it and, and your concern for people and building relationships. You know, I think so much of, um, so many organizations decide to do something because it's the right thing or because, it, you know, they should or because of all these other reasons. But um, it really needs to be based on a relationship to, to really reach people um, and to really become what you've made it. And um, so I just... Thank you for doing what you're doing in, in that community and for, um, you know, for 
being an inspiration to, you know, really tackle tough things and to, to not let the fact that it hasn't been done before be an obstacle. And I'm just really inspired by people who have great vision and who are doing things that haven't been done before. And just really glad that this has grown as much as it has in the last year and excited to see kind of where it goes next. Well, thank you. Well, it's great to be your friend. Um, that's probably my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time. It really means a lot knowing how much you have on your plate and how much you're in the midst of growing your team and all of that. But I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your thoughts on how you are addressing some of the needs that you're seeing and also how you feel that you have with Open Door Legal. Thank um, you. Making it possible for the law to be accessible to everyone. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you too. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Way Life Should Be, music written by Jenny and Tyler entitled Love Through Me. Follow us online at Life B Podcast for updates. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.